0: Here we are already second week in February, inching closer to spring. It's coming, hanging there. Hope everybody's doing good. This is Jill and uh, this is K9360 here to talk about the dogs with you on Wednesdays. Um, Last week we talked a little bit about training and management. Um, This week, I think we can extend that conversation into an exploration uh, from the breeder's side of the table. Uh, If you recall last week, the owner who contacted me had a mixed breed dog that she had obtained as a puppy. Um, She made some kind of reckless speculation about the nature of the dog's temperament but we know from conversations we've had here together in the past that the best predictor of the dog's temperament is a breeder who is actually selecting for good temperament right that if science has taught us if you're not selecting for those things you're automatically selecting away from them and so there's no guarantee right that you can can have that nice dog so I thought I'd share um, a little bit of a history with you written by a breeder that I respect and she um, she has some interesting things to say Um, I may punctuate those with some explanations uh, for a general reader uh, in the sense or general listener in the sense that she When she first published this, she was writing specifically to other breeders. So let's see what she has to say and see if there's anything we can learn about our own dogs, about the dogs we may have in the future um, and what that reciprocal or mutual relationship is between breeder and owner. She says, we've all done it, myself included. In the mid to late 1970s, I placed a handsome young dog with a family, willing to have him shown in the breed ring. In fact, the husband was open to the idea of handling the dog himself. The puppy had a rather strong personality, and I fo- soon found myself regretting the placement. I became acutely aware from conversation with the owners that the pup was getting away with murder, that the owners were giggling over his... Um, indulgent, you know, undirected behavior. They adored the dog and there was no way of convincing them to return him to me. He did finish his championship pretty handily with me showing him going winner's dog every day at our national specialty weekend for three five point majors. He settled in to become the household pet. But a year or so later, I began to receive calls asking for advice about behavioral Aspects of his life at home such as he doesn't like to go out in the rain we can't go near his food dish when he's eating and then we have to lock him in his crate when we have company my advice appeared to go unheeded I realized they were simply not equipped mentally or emotionally to follow it although the resolution was a difficult one I convinced them to return him to me his interaction with me was without problem but I came to the conclusion that my kennel help was in jeopardy and in the final analysis, my only choice was to euthanize this beautiful dog. It was a crushing decision and even after all these years, I am loath to think about it. As I recount the story, is there an underlying message that the blame for his aggressive behavior is being placed solely on his environment? I seem to be suggesting that the dog's owners, albeit without intention... Let the dog down by failing to deal with his strong personality through clear, fair, formal training and thoughtful management. Can I be certain of this? Or am I creating a story that lets me as his breeder off the hook? She continues. In the late 1960s, I bought a beautiful Yorkshire Terrier show female from a very respected breeder. The breeder told me all she needed was a little TLC, and what did I know back then? If someone had said that to me today, I would know right off that we were probably dealing with a significant issue of temperament. As lovely as this female was, she was shim- timid and shy, and she could never be shown. Has there ever been a shelter dog with temperament issues, usually the timid and fearful sort that was not abused by a previous owner? What I'm suggesting, she says, is that most of us, even those working in animal shelters, are prone to lay blame on the environment when a dog displays unfavorable personality traits. When we can blame the environment, there's this core hope, belief, or assumption that aberrant behavior can be reversed. If the causative factor can prove to be environmental, I don't doubt that that can be the case but it's often really hard to prove. Is it nature, genetics, or nurture, or both? Our shelters are filled with uh, some lovely dogs of all varieties, but also some of the worst. And many of the folks that run these shelters, as well-meaning as they may be, have no clue about how to change an animal's behavior And they can't do it in that setting anyway and hope that'll make a difference for the dog in a new home. They rely upon not much more than their love of animals to give credence to their ability to determine what is and is not acceptable behavior. And in my experience, when I worked with an animal shelter a few years ago, they also have a penchant for trying to match dogs to a specific breed or breed cross so it might be determined by a shelter worker that a terrier poodle cross would be a soft-coated of Wheaton Terrier a white dog with black spots might be a Dalmatian or a Dalmatian cross so what this means is that before breed rescue groups can set about to rescue a dog they must first determine if the dog thought to be purebred really is In these cases of mistaken identity are hugely problematic Over at the Canine Research Council, if you get on their website, there is exhaustive research there um, that says it is simply impossible to look at a dog and determine what that dog's genetic makeup might be. And yet, shelters do it all the time, rescues do it all the time, largely, I think, because American consumer is constitutionally incapable of buying generic even when people go to the shelter claiming they don't care what kind of dog it is they just want to save a life what's the first question they want to know as soon as they get that dog home this is why those um, inexpensive and entirely erratic DNA kits are so popular We have this burning need. What is it? As if knowing what it is will make any difference um, over the long run. Right? The American Kennel Club, affiliated clubs, parent clubs, have been involved in breed rescue for some time. As much as they might like to save the world, they draw the line at rescuing anything but the dogs, the breeds that they are affiliated with. Um, several months ago, the unthinkable happened to a caseworker, quote, foster, for a rescue, who accepted a dog into her home for evaluation prior to permanent placement. The dog had a documented bite history, but was accepted by the club's rescue committee anyway. The res- this rescue committee's policy determines that a dog with a known history of biting is unacceptable for adoption. So I don't know how you can define known history. Um, uh, To my way of thinking, a dog that's bitten a human being even once should be very, very carefully weighed as a candidate for adoption. Um, These dogs will bite. And in the eyes of owners and sometimes in the eyes of even the people who offer to foster them, it appears to be without provocation, which is never the case. But with a dog you don't know well, they can sometimes be hard to read uh, and those bites can inflict serious damage to arms and faces. Um, in this particular instance, some of the damage was permanent and so severe that the foster person had been able, unable to return to work. And uh, it, it, Going to a animal behaviorist won't fix anything It it just won't. And this is, of course, why we have to be careful about where we get dogs and who we get them from. I think the parent clubs, the Labrador Retriever Club of America, the Cocker Spaniel Club of America, has the best interest of their breeds at heart. And when they undertake a rescue program, they're doing it for the right reasons but are they doing the right thing when they take on a potentially dangerous dog, right? Um, as a transferer, this is a legal term that you may not have heard of before. A transferer, like a broker defined as a seller, an adoption agency, a shelter, a rescue organization, or a dog owner who places a dog with a new owner transfer that broker has certain legal obligations and if they're not met they can result in civil liability kenneth phillips on his dog bite law website writes quote there can be criminal consequences if a dangerous dog seriously injures or kills someone in its new home this is why we have lemon laws with cars right why when I sold my old Subaru, I had to list it as a project car because I didn't know enough about cars to know how to disclose all the things that might be wrong. And it's not legal to sell a car without disclosing, I guess, under the lemon laws. Anyway, I wasn't going to risk it. So I had to list it, list it as a project. How many dogs would get adopted if they were listed as project dogs. I don't know. We don't know. We've never done it. You know, while speaking to another dog owner uh, earlier and listening to her story, she had a biter. Uh, I have no, no idea how many times the dog really bit her, but she recounted at least four. And in most instances, she was able to provide grounds for his behavior. Uh, the excuse for one attack was that instead of putting the dog in his crate, her husband tethered him in the yard. A tethered dog is a very frustrated dog, and that can that frustration can spill over. Um, this dog lived out his life of some 15 years, totally in charge of his environment. Another breeder I know laid blame for her dog's behavior on a mean-spirited, heartless former owner. And her, that dog was euthanized after he bit both of his new owners where there stitches required before he could even before they could even get him out of their car in still another case the owner of a quote difficult dog agreed to return him to his breeder when she realized she'd become a prisoner in her own home along with him came a two-page document listing how to handle and live with him suggestions such as give him a piece of food while putting on his collar the dog was frighteningly aggressive and the breeder took him straight to the veterinarian to be euthanized. Of course, then there's the story of a couple who purchased a lovely little Rottweiler puppy from a very reputable breeder, sweet and well-behaved. And here's where a little excuse creeps into the story. Um, As it goes, as a young dog, he spent a great deal of time alone. They were building a house and he would spend the night in a run before they finished construction. As he matured, the husband worked him in obedience and some uh, sports training. He became more aggressive as he aged and they had to be careful feeding him. One day the wife put his food bowl down before his water bowl. He grabbed her arm and would not let go. She had to bang on his head to get her arm free and she had a huge tear that required many, many stitches. They kept the dog and blamed themselves for putting the food bowl down first. Some time later, she was lying by the pool. He would come up and stare at her menacingly until she could distract him and run into the house. A few months later, he assaulted her father-in-law. They could not bear to put him down and instead placed him with his protection sports trainer. Who knows what happened there? I think there's a recurring theme here, and it's that most dog owners cannot handle the idea of euthanasia for biting dogs. They sit trapped in their own homes, thinking they might have done something wrong, blaming themselves for the dog's behavior, living a nightmare. Sometimes adding to their self-flagellation, the breeder may lay a little guilt trip on them. Hmm, lay a little guilt trip on them as well, right? What have you done? What did you do? And who is to say what's right and what's wrong what's correct what's incorrect breeders make excuses and owners blame themselves when the owners can't handle euthanasia if there is no breeder offering to take the dog back and they are unwilling to continue their living nightmare what recourse is left for them they can call a trainer not a behaviorist an actual trainer And see what's possible. For some folks, they feel like the only way out is to surrender the dog to a shelter. And that's how so many problem dogs end up in shelters. And the shelters don't disclose either because they don't know or they want to attribute the dog's behavior to some manufactured notion of abuse. So maybe you can say that failing to train a dog is a form of abuse or neglect. If failing to train the dog to teach him how to live successfully in your home results in his being dropped off at a shelter kennel where shelter workers or rescue won't know the dog's real circumstance and therefore can't share it with you when it comes time to place the dog right in someone's home. One way that responsible breeders can serve their rescue programs is to listen. Those who choose rightly or wrongly to buy their pets through pet shops Commercial breeders, backyard breeders generally have nowhere to turn. The pet store isn't going to take the dog back. Commercial breeders really aren't going to take the dog back. And backyard breeders don't even know that they might have some responsibility to uh, stand behind what they produce. Those folks are not going to offer advice or counseling. There's kind of a void to be filled here um, AKC Parent Club websites would be well advised to offer counseling of this nature. Uh, I know that my breed club does a lot of triage and that before that as dogs are accepted into rescue, they are kept for quite a while to be able to assess or determine temperament um, and how the dog is gonna react In certain situations, and then they are placed very, very, very carefully. They are not listed on social media or on the internet for anybody who wants to just sort of shop for dogs like we shop for shoes on Amazon or Zappo or something. Um, It's much, much, much more thoughtful than that. Speaking uh, recently with a breeder who served in this capacity for her local breed club, she made it clear that there's nothing more painful than counseling those who are dealing with scary dogs or seriously troubling behavior challenges um, like like the dog we talked about last week who cannot be confined. She said, it's far more difficult than dealing with physical disease even those where death is imminent. She added, but it must be done. We have a duty as protectors of our breed to not only support rescue programs, but to support owners regardless of who bred their dog, right? If they made poor consumer choices in terms of where they got the dog from, by the time they contact us, that ship has sailed. There's no point unless the only point would be to suggest that next time we look for a different source for the dog in the hopes of creating a better outcome. Um, meanwhile, the time has long since passed for those who keep, breed, own, and place purebred dogs to own up to the fact that many purebreds can exhibit serious temperament issues it's not new this is not new if you go all the way back right we can tell stories about American cocker spaniels or uh, Wheaton terriers who have evolved or derived from uh, a couple of dogs two Wheaton terrier females Imported to the United States back in the 1950s, that he described as mean as snakes. And they were later put down, but not before they were bred. It's a bis- bit, uh, well, and a few of our breeds have unfortunately become legend because of overly aggressive temperaments. And a bit disconcerting is that some breeds being considered for acceptance into AKC's purebred dog listing have rather daunting temperament descriptions, so much so that there are AKC judges who are loath to want to judge them. So in the final analysis, brushing off behavioral challenges or temperament challenges or sweeping them under the rug is contrary to all that respected, reputable breeders stand for. Um... They will, can, need, must own up to the dogs that they feel would not make suitable sires due to unstable temperament and take genetic disease very seriously in the breeding programs. If they're looking, overlooking or brushing aside faulty, aberrant, off kinds of temperament because it's easy to make excuses, that needs to stop too breeders producing dogs with sound temperament must become the primary focus and goal. One breeder I know, in fact I have a dog from his kennel says health is first temperament is second breed type show ability, all that stuff is third and that's not always the order that people go in right? um And we've talked about this before that there's such a wide variation. People who are breeding for the temperament that we might might want to say is well-known or characteristic of a certain breed will produce a dog, dogs, who have that temperament. People who don't know that you have to select carefully for temperament will breed whatever they have to whatever they have. And that's where we start to see things drifting away. And that's not always um, where we might wanna spend our consumer dollars. It leads to lots and lots of misunderstandings about why doesn't the dog act like the last one we had or the one we had when I was a kid or the description of the dog that we read when we looked up this breed on the AKC webpage, right? Well, what was your breeder selecting for? That's the question to ask. And uh, we don't always do so well with that. So be careful out there, folks, right? Head back to where we started with this as we end with it today, right? Placing dogs is the scariest part of breeding dogs and if you aren't thinking that way you should be um not so long ago i had a couple of college students ask me what i thought about whether or not they should breed their mixed breed dog to another mixed breed dog because they had friends who wanted puppies college kids and um, my suggestion was before you breed anything go volunteer in your local shelter This would be in Vermilion, South Dakota. Go volunteer in the shelter, in the euthanasia room. Ask questions of every dog that you put down about how that dog came to be there. And when you have a really, really clear understanding of why dogs end up in shelter kennels and why they're euthanized in municipal shelters, then you can breed a litter and sell them on a contract that says you will take those puppies back at any time during their natural life no questions asked because you wouldn't want to be the breeder who's filling up shelter kennels right right if we have a heart for a dog then we don't want to be part of the problem as the saying goes yeah And that means thinking a little bit beyond the end of your fingertips, right? A little bit beyond the, uh, or maybe a way to say that is to balance your short-term desires against the long-term implications for the dogs you're producing, the homes they go to, and the uh, very, very human dynamics that influence when we get dogs, why we get dogs and what happens when we decide we can't keep or have them anymore? And I don't know, college kids? Hmm. Maybe wait till you have a stable living situation, <laughs> right? Where, where uh, your own life isn't quite so volatile or up and down or erratic or unpredictable. All right, y'all. Thanks for... Uh, making it all the way to the end of this ride on this little february wednesday stick around the celebration's coming up and we're always so glad to have you with us so so appreciative of you being here until next week this is jill you've been listening to k 360 on kzum and KZUMHD. The coolest radio station in the whole world. Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Wednesday for some more fun.